Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. How to monetize the business case for sustainability. Tensi Whalen, director of NYU Stern School of Business, Center for Sustainable Business, will discuss her work on proving the business case for sustainability. Tenzi will discuss latest research in proving the business case for embracing sustainability in the corporate strategy. This is Radical Truth. Uh, I'm really honored and thrilled that uh, Tenzi was able to, is able to join us today. Uh, I've known her for a very long time. We first met in, in Mexico. She is one of my superheroes and uh, was incredibly influential in moving the needle in sustainability, particularly in commodities uh, as president of Rainforest Alliance. Now she's a clinical professor at NYU. So for those of you who are not familiar with her, I'm just going to pass it over to Tenzi. She can give you a brief introduction and then she'll do her presentation. Tenzi. Yeah, thank you so much, Robert. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And congratulations, you've been a leader in sustainable finance for um, I won't say how many years, <laughs> but many years. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, I think, um, really playing a, such an important role um, before people even knew what, what this was all about. Um, so uh, it's, it's an honor to be here with you today. Um, so as, as Robert mentioned, I'm Tonsi Whalen. I run the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU Stern School of Business. Um, had been launched it about five years ago, and the focus of the center is on how we can um, help current and future business leaders embed sustainability core to their business strategy and drive innovation and risk mitigation, employee engagement, uh, better financial performance, as well as return to society. Um, and prior to that, as, as as Robert mentioned, I ran the Rainforest Alliance for 15 years, and we worked on sustainable agriculture, tourism, and forestry around the world, working with about 5,000 companies in about 60 countries to really transform both land use practices and business practices. Um, so it's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm looking forward to sharing with you some of the research we've been doing on how to monetize the business case for sustainability. I think we can go ahead with our slides, Robert. And I had technical difficulties before trying to share my screen, so Robert is being kind enough to do this for me. <laughs> Great. So we can go to the next slide. So the you know, first the question that all of us wrestle with, you know, does sustainability cre create financial value? Next slide. And I think that we're really seeing that that indeed is the case. This is a study that um, Arabesque and Oxford, University of Oxford did about five years ago um, where they found um, in a meta-analysis of more than 200 academic studies that there is strong correlation with lower cost of capital, better operational performance, and good sustainability practices. And actually, we're coming out now, five years later, 
with a study that looked at the 1,200 or so um, academic studies that have been published this past year and finding as well very strong correlations. So look, look to see that coming out in the next month or so. Uh, next slide. Um, we've seen during COVID that ESG has outperformed in many um, cases, of course, with all strategies, some work and some don't. But as of September, 45% um, of ESG-focused funds outperformed their index, according to Morningstar, and Bloomberg Intelligence also found similar um, high performance. Uh, next slide, Robert, if you're still there. Thank you. Um, our research is also looking at the value being created in terms of consumers. So we have a partnership with IRI, which collects all of our barcode data at retail in the United States for everybody from um, Walmart to small mom and pop shops. And uh, what we found is that 55% um, of the growth in consumer packaged goods, which is personal care and food products, came from um, sustainability marketed products in the last five years. We will be issuing our new research on this in March, um, but what we've seen thus far is that sustainability has actually continued to survive during COVID um, and even continued to grow slightly. Next slide. And you can see um, here the purple lines are um, the sustainably marketed products and uh, of the category and the blue are the conventional um, across all the different um, categories. So probably hard to read the um, types of categories, but it ranges from uh, dairy, which you can see here um, the, uh, is in a deficit situation, whereas the sustainably marketed Products such as organic, no GMO, plant-based, sustainable plant-based alternatives um, are in a plus growth um, situation. And all of those on the left uh, are, are over 100% um, growth coming from sustainably marketed um, areas. Next. And this all happened whilst charging a 39% premium, right? And we know that it doesn't actually cost 39% uh, in terms of premium. So um, uh, this has been a very good business for companies. They've been able to grow and charge a premium. Next. Uh, and this is material. Uh, we saw prior to COVID, um, the two largest dairy firm uh, firms in the United States, Borden and Dean Foods, announced bankruptcy. And um, a big part of that was that they were no longer paying attention to consumer trends and what they were looking for in terms of dairy, like we saw in this um, uh, research. Next. But the challenge remains in terms of the return on sustainability investment. How do we measure it? You know, we see all these studies that show a good correlation between ESG and financial performance, but no causality. And that's because when you look under the hood, companies often aren't tracking the return on their sustainability investment. And also because some of those um, benefits are intangibles, uh, such as reputational uh, benefits or employee benefits. Next slide. So at Stern, we've developed a, a, a framework called ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment. And what we found through our research with companies is that when a company embeds sustainability in its strategy and practice, it drives a, a variety of what we call mediating factors, customer loyalty, better employer relations, innovation, improved media coverage, more operational efficiencies, better risk management, improved sales and marketing, et cetera. Um, and that then drives better financial performance. Now, any kind of good management can drive innovation or better employee relations or more sales and marketing. But what we're seeing is that sustainability is actually that next phase of good management. Next slide, please. 
So the ROSI process starts with identifying what are the material ESG issues and strategies for a given sector or company, then gets to the level of what are the practices you put in place to implement your sustainability strategy, let's just say um, uh, sustainable sourcing, right? So um, when we look at the practice level, we then identify the benefits back to the company using the ROSI framework of, is this resulting in more innovation and growth? Is it resulting in better employee relations and thus um, higher retention and lower uh, better productivity? Uh, and then we look and we quantify. So if it's more productivity, how much? And then we monetize what is that productivity resulting into the bottom line? Next slide. We have a variety of Rosie partners, um, and I also want to highlight one, uh, ALO Partners, who's on the call, John Platko, who's been really helping us uh, develop this methodology from, from the beginning. Um, but we also work with a variety of different companies um, uh, on, on Rosie. Next, please. So to give you a few examples, um, one is uh, some work we did around automotive manufacturing. Next. And we identified 18 sustainability strategies by the, uh, in use by the companies. And we looked at, again, what would be the financial value drivers associated with these strategies. So if you look to the left, you'll see things like reduce carbon emissions, reduce um, VFC em uh, emissions, recycle and recover end-of-life products. And there you'll see operational efficiencies, improved sales and marketing, better media as benefits of those types of strategies. Other ones like avoiding use of conflict minerals or improving safety, you're looking at risk reduction. Um, things around, uh, you know, electric cars or other types of innovations around safety in the cars um, uh, come under the innovation um, area. And then we've got, um, you know, employee benefits of better practices uh, and, and better supplier engagement. Actually, one of the things that we've seen during COVID as an aside is that companies that have had um, focus on sustainable supply chains have seen more resiliency in those partnerships. Next slide. So to show you how we then take that information, um, so one sustainable strategy in uh, automotive is to improve waste management. One practice is to recycle paint and solvents. When you recycle paint and solvents, you no longer buy the virgin stuff, so you have less cost for that. You no longer have the waste disposal costs, so you save money. And they're actually having some left over and selling it, so they have a small revenue stream from that. Next slide, please. So overall, in the automotive sector, we found for one company that sustainability strategies, and these three here are the ones that generate the most value in automotive, um, can improve earnings by up to 3.7% of revenue. Next. To give you some examples on waste management, um, we saw a variety of different actions that resulted in an annual EBIT impact of $235 million for one company. What's important here is to understand that the company, and this is true across all the companies we're working with, is that they are not themselves collecting this information and tying it back to their sustainability strategy, in this case, their waste reduction strategy. So over and over and over again, we're seeing very big, sophisticated companies who have very big, sophisticated sustainability strategies not understand what value is actually being created, even something as relatively simple as operational efficiency. Next slide. Here's another interesting one. We looked at end of life of vehicles in Europe. Um, as you know, you're uh, required, automotive companies are required to be responsible for end of life. For one company, that meant that in Europe, they were um, recovering and reusing 2.5% of material out of those cars and selling 10% of it to recyclers. Um, they had a net 
positive of $100 million of that. But they again, they hadn't looked at that because they were thinking of this just as sort of a compliance vehicle, that they had to comply with the law as opposed to thinking about how you could actually turn it into a revenue uh, center. Next. And final example, recalls, um, SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, um, says, you know, uh, this is a really important area for um, uh, ESG, material ESG issues. And we found, of course, companies are tracking that and tracking costs, but they're not tracking the full complement of costs. So we looked at all the different costs associated with this and found that for one company, the benefit of more than a dozen fewer uh, recalls one year to the next um, uh, was more than a half a billion dollars. Next slide. Looking at um, a couple of other examples in pharmaceuticals, we worked with a company who was looking at loss of exclusivity around um, a particular drug and decided to apply a green chemistry approach to that to see how they might deal with that um, loss of market. In that green chemistry approach, we saw, first of all, that um, you know really significant benefits in terms of um, the E, so less energy use, less chemicals, less water, less waste generation, um, 75% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Next. But we also saw really significant, significant financial benefits, reduction of electricity costs, reduction of water costs, reduction of industrial waste disposal costs. So about 1.3 million per 100 metric tons as a result of shifting to this green chemistry approach. Next. In addition, um, this also reduced carbon emission fees in the areas where they had to pay them um, to the tune of about $240,000 per 100 metric tons. And we used a very low estimate of $5 per ton. Um, but uh, you can see that this will be an area where, um, we'll need, where companies will need to get out in front of because it's going to be a lot more costly for them moving forward. Next. We also looked at um, how you might apply Rosie to this to investing in the low carbon transition. This is a project we did with ALO Partners. Next. Um, so we uh, worked with a Canadian electricity generator uh, who was contemplating what to do with the fact that the Canadian government has required all utilities to get out of coal by 2030. And the organization was trying to determine if it should get out of coal earlier and take a leadership position. Uh, so it did its traditional financial analysis, but then asked us to uh, apply Rosie to determine what additional benefits might accrue. Next. Um, so we looked at a variety of different things with them, risk management, stakeholder engagement, talent management, customer loyalty, sales and marketing, and innovation. Uh, we ended up focusing on a couple of areas. Next. Specifically um, around employees, because what we um, found and believe is the case is that um, increasingly employees of, co of companies like utilities are concerned about working with those that are having a negative impact on climate change. And particularly in terms of younger generation, um, you know, they're, they're, they're interested in working with companies for companies who align with their values. So analyzing and doing this very, very conservatively, um, we looked at both retention and labor productivity. Um, came out to about four and a half million dollars there. Um, but then the big the big uh, benefit for the company was around lower cost of capital, because what we are seeing is that investors um, are applying a higher cost of capital due to risk to those companies that are um, uh, basing their businesses on coal or oil and gas or other things. So um, this was a really interesting um, exercise. And in fact, the company decided to get out of coal earlier as a result of this um, rosy analysis. Next. 
And then final example is, you know, thinking about how we apply Rosie to monetizing employee relation benefits. Next. So we worked with um, REI, uh, an outdoor wear uh, company that has a very strong purpose orientation um, and a very strong sustainability focus. And so we looked um, at their employee surveys to establish that indeed there was a correlation there in terms of companies' pride in being in the company, their the values alignment, et cetera. Um, and what we found through the research with REI is that their purpose and sustainability orientation um, reduced turnover and hiring costs, increased productivity amongst highest performers. Um, so we took the the numbers of those two things. Um, we I, we figured out sort of using some uh, basic assumptions around productivity and retention, and then also their own numbers. Uh, and then we subtracted some mission aligned investments that they have around giving employees day off days off to volunteer around conservation and things like that for a total net benefit about thirty four million dollars to the company, which is about five percent of their payroll expenses. So pretty significant benefit of having that purpose alignment in the company. Next. And now I just want to show you quickly sort of how the sausage is made a little bit. Um, we just uh, in December at the Bloomberg Responsible Business Summit unveiled our ROSI framework um, uh, on sustainable apparel. And I just want to show you a little bit about how this works. Next. So first, in interviewing the companies, and we worked with a variety, um, we looked at what are the key sustainability strategies that the apparel sector is employing. Um, and if you look at the top, the top four um, really fall again into your operational efficiency bucket, reducing chemical impacts, improving water management, energy management, and investing in reduction of material waste. And then down below, we see sort of innovation around sustainable um, raw material sourcing, but also social issues, and then innovation in circularity, um, investing in employee and supply chain well-being, and then also investing in sustainable brand marketing and communications. Next. And then we looked across the value chain, right, um, to understand where um, where were the opportunities for impactful change in terms of the different practices. So then we could figure out those practices and then look at the um, monetization. So here you see, you know, ranging from product development and procurement, raw materials, you know, traditional supply chain focus, and some things like employee and supplier well-being that runs across the whole the whole chain. Next. So just to pull out one of those strategies, if you remember the eight that I told you about, investing in circularity and innovation. So down the left-hand side, you'll see um, broad practices that companies are employing in the apparel space around circularity. One is investing in circular product take-back programs. Another is in circular packaging solutions. Another is in minimizing production waste and increasing product uh, longevity. And finally, reducing product returns. And then so for every part of the chain, we looked at what are the specific practices that you have to put in place to actually implement on uh, these um, broader practices, right? So if you look at um, invest in circular product take-back programs um, at the distribution and retail level, um, you can have textile recycling and upcycling, for example. And at the consumer end of things, you can have incentive take-backs for those products. So for each of these, we went through and identified how would you monetize these different practices. Again, we're not saying that these practices are exhaustive. There'll be others that companies have developed, but we've developed a tool, which you'll find online, that gives you a good sense of, of um, how to go about this. Next slide. 
So for circularity and innovation, when we look at the mediating factors that can drive financial value, they are operational efficiency, innovation and growth, customer loyalty and sales and marketing, and risk management. Um, and so we then looked at those across uh, the different practices next. And I'll just show you an example of, of how we would then monetize. And this is challenging for me to read, so it must be really challenging for you to read. Um, so you've got um, invest in circular take-back programs, the sub-practice of encouraging resale participation. Um, and then we sort of identify what we think are the benefits and um, the mediating factors. And then we've identified here how you would monetize it. So what are the monetization um, methodologies or equations to understand um, uh, the financial returns? Um, we are uh, currently working on two cases with Reformation and Eileen Fisher, which we'll be publishing soon about the benefits that they've seen and how we've monetized those benefits. Um, but what we're seeing is super interesting, for example, is that um, having a uh, product that um, is gently used in the stores, and this is prior to COVID, um, actually brought in a younger demographic to the stores that they had, uh, the company had been challenged to recruit prior. It also, and they gave coupons to their customers to come in and um, return the clothes. And when, um, and those coupons function very effectively to actually um, get consumers in to buy more product. Uh, so there was a whole series of secondary benefits that we could monetize along with the actual sale of the product, which, um, clearly had a very low uh, cost basis, so they had pretty high margins on it because uh, it was a gently used product. Um, next, I think that's my last slide. Yes, so open it up to you, Robert, and other questions. Uh, Robert, you're muted. Okay, so I had I had a couple of questions. What does Rosie stand for? Return on sustainability investment, or Rosie the Riveter, <laughs> but um, or a Rosie future, but it is return on sustainability investment. And the research that was done was it mainly done on European companies or North American companies, and were they mainly listed or non-listed companies? We've been working primarily with listed companies, but not exclusively. Um, so the apparel companies are privately held companies. Um, the, most of the companies are uh, from North America, um, although some, uh, quite a few actually have operations in Europe, and some of them are based in Europe. Um, as I said, it's about 20 companies that we've worked on this so far. Okay. Um... The speaker's name is Tenzi Whalen. Somebody had a question <laughs> that that it wasn't listed there, but that, that's okay. Um, the other thing, don't you find it? It's 2021 that you have to do this, uh, that you actually have to make the business case, because you know, if you even without being a PhD or an expert, it it seems pretty. Um, straightforward and you know we've been also saying it for 25 years but do you st do the people still need research to prove the case or it, should we just forget it they well they need research but also they actually need the tools to begin to track this in their companies i think what's happened is that companies have invested in sustainability strategies with broad objectives in mind um 
you know, avoiding risk or responding to consumer demand or responding to regulatory pressures. Uh, but they haven't put in place along with that sustainability strategy, which tends to be driven out of the sustainability area and then brought into supply chain or wherever else. Um, but they haven't really incorporated that into their their finances, right, into their financial analysis, into their financial metrics. And when you look at, for public companies, when you look at quarterly calls, which is another area we've done research on, um, you also find that the focus is, uh, you know, 100% on the financials. And when companies try to bring in ESG, they bring it without the financial impact. So understandably, analysts are not interested in just sort of hearing about your climate change emission reduction versus, hey, my climate change targets have led me to develop a new uh, service that's bringing in X amount of money or it's improved my process so that I'm saving money in terms of energy efficiency. Uh, so I think, um, yes, we still hear over and over and over again from people inside companies, I need help in making the business case because I can't get the scale of investment that I need to, to move this forward. But also, even those companies that are making the investment, their decision-making is, is um, limited because they don't have the right tools to understand where the value is being created. And finally, investors, um, you know, uh, don't, uh, you know, we've got all this, this data that shows these correlations, but without causality, you don't really know where, what might be causing these financial benefits. And you therefore don't know how to engage with companies about encouraging um, more investment in certain areas, which is not to say that all investments in sustainability should have to have a return, uh, you know, a significant return, right? There are things that you need to do regardless. But what we're seeing is that there's uh, literally like a portfolio. And if you think about it as a portfolio where a, a number of the things you're doing are actually make, giving you significant returns, that can then fund the other things that might be more costly. You said that the, um, the cost of capital was lower in some some cases. Um, so are you saying that the, the financial sector is further in their accepting that sustainability provides financial value than the non-financial sector? Well, I think both have, have come a long way. I think that the um, investor space is now beginning to price in particularly issues related to climate change. And now after COVID, looking more at social issues. Um, you know, I would say that we've saw the beginnings of that pricing in, uh, you know, starting some years ago, but not in any kind of mainstream way. So I think that um, now companies are real, or investors are really recognizing that um, there's a there's a real potential risk and downside to not um, managing these issues. And then on the corporate side, you know, I think the corporates are, uh, you know, taking leadership. What, what is it now? 95% of all Fortune 100 companies have are issuing sustainability reports. Um, there is significant um, investment and in growth, though um, a lot yet to be done and uh, not sufficient scaling, which is where Rosie comes in. Because you really need to be in order to scale really dramatically, which is what we need. Uh, you need the, the financial ability to do that. And you need the investors to support that. I get a lot of complaints from non-financial sector listed. I remember visiting huge IT company, computer company in Hong Kong, complaining that we spend all of this effort on making these sustainability reports and the financial sector never reads them, never asks for them. Will your system, Rosie, make it more idiot-proof for them to want to read it? Or is it really you're not focused on the financial sector, you're really focused on the non-financial sector, the industrial sector, the manufacturer, the retail? 
No, I, we are actually focused on the investors as well because we're oh. seeing that the investors are the are a very important stakeholder in driving uptake by corporations of sustainability, and that's just growing as we've seen um, from the latest. Uh, uh, both results in terms of performance during COVID, but also the um, uh, a- a announcement of sort of how much ESG has grown over the last two years. Um, so, uh, for example, we're working with a private equity firm called Invest Industrial, based in Europe. Um, they uh, are very interested in bringing sustainability to the companies they invest in as a way to increase value. And they're also working with us to train those companies in Rosie so that they will start to be um, tracking Rosie metrics along with sustainability metrics so that they're aligned um, for those companies as part of creating more value for them as a, as a, um, as an owner and investor in these, in these companies. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, the biggest challenge we have today, well, we have two challenges around reporting and disclosure, right? One is that there's, it's a mess <laughs> around ESG data and, you know, all the different standards and um, self-reporting and deciding what you're going to report on. But the other is that it's completely divorced from the financials, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, increasingly investors will ask for that and corporates will begin to understand that it will help with their um, strategic objectives and decision-making and corporate business strategy to begin to connect the two. Okay. I'm going to start taking some questions because the list is getting a bit, I have to put my glasses to read this. Okay, do you have statistically significant evidence of causality, i.e., can you draw a robust, robust line from the sustainability indicator and improved earnings or other tangible benefits from Kerry Max? Um, so in terms of statistically significant, I mean, we're doing this company by company as opposed to using big data. Um, so what we can tell you is that for every company that we've been working with, as we do this analysis, we're finding really significant financial benefit, as I showed you in some of the examples. Um, it's some, you know, as we move forward and as hopefully companies really start to collect this type of rosy data, um, then hopefully at some point there will be big data to enable us to look at these correlations as opposed to where I'm looking at, which is really causality. That said, we're actually doing some additional research using big data with um, Arabesque, Just Capital, and B Corp data, where we're looking at correlations between the provision of quality jobs along four different dimensions and financial performance indicators. Um, and we are finding statistically um, relevant uh, data, and this will be coming out in, in a couple of months, um, that is demonstrating that if you put in place good quality jobs, you actually do perform better financially, which runs counter to sometimes the thinking that, you know, labor is your biggest cost and therefore you need to cut costs there as much as possible in order to deliver more um, returns to your shareholders. So um, we are we are looking at some of those questions. Kerry, I had a, another question about recalls. Does sustainability impact the level of recalls? Well, sustainability includes ESG, right? And, and the um, S is safety. When you look at the SASB Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, material ESG issues for the automotive sector, safety is included in there. Um, so, yes, safety is an important um, sustainability issue and one that does have um, real financial impacts. Uh, Veronica wanted to know, in your experience, 
where in the business does the business that's a bit weird, is important to make the business case for sustainability? For example, is it at the board level, the CEO, procurement, or someone in another role? Well, the CFO is incredibly important. I, I just published an HBR piece called How to Talk to Your CFO About Sustainability. Um, and, and I think too often the CFO is left out of sustainability strategies and planning. Um, but mainly what you need is really a cross-divisional team because the value is being cre- is maybe driven by a top-down sustainability strategy, but the value is being created in HR in marketing, in brand, in supply chain, in procurement, in IR, um, you know, in finance. So you really need a, a team that's going to come together to identify what are those key metrics and how do we put in place ways to track um, the financial benefit of these strategies over time, um, led by the sustainability lead, but really with, I would say, hand in hand with a, a lead from finance. Um. Lauren wanted to know, does Rosie work well for private companies as well as public firms? Absolutely. So the work we're doing we, uh, with the apparel sector, with REI, finance, um, Eileen Fisher, and uh, Reformation, all private firms, the work that we're doing with Invest Industrial around their privately held companies, um, absolutely. It's a tool that anybody can use, and you can use it for looking backward, and you can use it for planning and looking forward. You can use it for reporting. You can use it in a variety of different ways. Um, I have several comments and questions regarding the presentation. Some felt it was like trying to take a drink from a fire hose, so there was a lot of information. Is this public domain uh, report? or this presentation, some several would like to receive a copy? Uh, first of all, please feel free to send the copy. You can okay. Please feel free to send the link to the HBR article that I talked about. And then no. um, on our website, uh, um, if you just look up CSB, Center for Sustainable Business, Rosie, um, we have all of the articles, tools, academic articles, business articles, Excel spreadsheets, um, videos, et cetera, um, you know, as much as possible there. And then a full sustainable apparel framework page as well. And we plan to build out for different sectors. The next sector we'll be working on is as agriculture and food. Okay. Um, amazing. I too have taken something about more sustainability. Uh, okay. Is Rosie agnostic to the size of the business. Uh, we need to break into SME's bottom-up approach. Totally agnostic to the size of the business. Um, and what I would hope is that smaller companies, startup companies, would build this in from the beginning, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to understand um, operational efficiency returns or uh, sales and marketing returns or employee relation returns, that's relevant for all companies, no matter what their size. Uh, Ben wanted to know, can we see the sustainable market share index somewhere? Yes, that's also on our website. So if they just look up um, uh, CSB sustainable market share index, they'll find uh, the latest PowerPoint uh, data deck that we put out in September. And then in March, we'll be uh, doing our annual conference and we'll be releasing a lot of our research at that point. Uh, when we send the uh, the mail to everyone who registered saying that the replay is now available for those who missed the live episode, 
I will add those links and right. the presentation so you can you can have all of that. Uh, PJ Pajamas Siemens. Okay, Tenzi, brilliant work as always. Any work on assigning value to companies' investments in ESG-related transparency and reporting? Hi, PJ. Nice to hear from you. No, and that I think would be very interesting as to there's a couple of areas that we have not gotten um, sort of partners to look at. And I think transparency and disclosure would be a really interesting place to understand the financial benefits. I mean, if I were looking at it, I could identify some like um, risk reduction or um, employee engagement returns, et cetera. But I'd need to, to, you know, I think we really need to look at what specifically the company was doing. Another area, while I'm promoting this, that we'd like to have partnership around would be also looking at um, social issues in supply chains and, um, you know, finding companies who wanted to test and understand financial benefits of uh, improved working conditions, et cetera, in their supply chains. That would be also super fascinating. Uh, okay. Elizabeth wanted to know, is the Rosie tool available for consultants to businesses? I guess if it's open source, I'll send the link. And that's true. Hi, Tenzi. Inspiring presentation. Uh, I'm dubious. I'm curious, which Canadian energy company did you work with? And what is the company, what is the R company you mentioned? If you can't answer that, that's okay. Uh, Canadian Power is the utility company. And uh, what was the second question? The R company? The uh, what is the, in parentheses, is that an R? Yeah, I think it's an R. What is the, oh, I-R-I, sorry. I -R -I. Oh, R-E-I. So that's um, an apparel company that uh, makes outdoor, outdoor wear. And that's the name of the company, R-E-I. I forget what it stands for. It stands for something, but they only. Recreation. Yeah buy from them i like them uh, great presentation. <laughs> do you have an example of how rosie applies to a cpg ideally food most of the examples were in automotive clothing and retail yeah so we did a study which is also written about an hbr looking at deforestation free supply chains with mcdonald's and carrefour and two slaughterhouses and ranchers in brazil particularly looking at the beef supply chain um, that was the very first study that we did, and I think we've learned something from there. But what we found, which was quite fascinating, is that it was the sustainable agriculture practices that the farmers put in place that resulted in significant um, improvements in productivity, uh, lower costs, et cetera, so they, um, and higher quality of the product. So they had significant financial benefit of investing in sustainable agriculture. But the deforestation-free commitments was more avoided risk. And so it was the fact that they were getting more money from the sustainable ag that they could then invest in the deforestation-free. And then we saw moving up the chain that the slaughterhouses and the retailers benefited from um, improved stability in their supply chains because, you know, a, a better paid rancher is a more stable rancher, better quality product in their supply chain, as well as lower risk associated with, um, you know, potential problems from a deforestation or social perspective. Uh, and okay. we are currently working, as I highlighted, with McCormick and Cargill, and um, we've done work with Mars around supply chain analysis, um, which the, the Mars work is available. The other two are in process. Uh, Thabang had a question. Um, how do we categorize dumping after vehicles reach their end of life particularly in the developing world to Africa, should it be considered part monetizing for sustainability? 
Should dumping the cars off on, uh, well, so um, I, are we thinking, are we, so I'm not sure if we're referring to dumping them into their landfills or reselling them to those communities. Um, I can say when I lived in Costa Rica for a number of years, we were sending all of our old school buses and other things down there. And um, they all were really bad emitters on the air quality. And since it was horrible as a result of our dumping those vehicles down there. Um, so I would, depending on what you're talking about, there's a potential negative externality associated with that kind of dumping. Um, or you could be retrofitting the vehicles um, and, you know, providing a benefit, um, selling them at a lower price for people who couldn't afford them. If you're improving, you know, making sure that they're not contributing to, um, you know, more pollution in that country because you can no longer sell them in your country due to, um, you know, uh, pollution control. So, you know, depends. Um, Carrie's been busy. Tenzi, I'm in the public sector trying to incentivize private sector uptake of sustainable investment. So if Rosie is backed by econometric models with statistically significant evidence of causality, that would be a major game changer in providing evidence to support the behavior case. Is that the case? No, as, as I said earlier, we're really doing this one by one. So it's, you know, we have cases with, with individual companies um, and we've got a process and a methodology, but we're not collecting big data at scale. This data is not available is the problem because companies aren't collecting it. So if I were trying to look at big data um, uh, to get to that statistical correlation that you're asking for, the data would not be there. Nobody's collecting and um, being able to report on what are the total financial benefits of their um, race reduction strategy or of their circular uh, in investments. Um, and so that is the thing, the nut that we have to crack is get companies to begin to track this. And then I think at that point, when you start to have that data in the same way that you have ESG data or regular financial data, then you could begin to um, look at these broader correlations. But again, as I said, in quality jobs, we're attempting to do that as you know, sort of a proxy and that, that information will be out and you can make up your own mind if it's uh, statistically relevant or not. The dollar value mentioned in your case studies of savings, Roshit is asking this. Are these dollar values getting reflected in the income statement for the exact number and contributing to earnings improvement? Or are these values getting lost and doesn't show up in the income statement for the exact value? They're getting lost. Yep. And in every case, because companies aren't putting in place the metrics to track them, they don't know that these strategies are resulting in these kinds of benefits over and over again. I mean, in another uh, case, we uh, worked with a, apparel company who uh, had been slowly moving out. So the, the, the sort of apparel companies have three, three transport mix, a mix, right, of air, shipping, and truck. Shipping is the least uh, climate intensive. Due to their climate uh, commitments, they were shifting somewhat out of air, although due to the apparel sectors need to kind of have just-in-time delivery and quick turnaround in terms of seasonal fashion and so on, they can get it out of it altogether. Anyway, um, they had begun to, over a couple of years, get out of air and more into checking and shipping. They had never tracked the financial returns on that, which, again, seems like a basic thing, but this is what we find over and over again. Um, they had tracked the greenhouse gas emissions. So we were able to look at that, look at the whole thing, and understand how much money they had saved as a result of shifting that mix. And more interestingly, during COVID, um, price of air transport went up three times because of the, the far reduced flights. So while their total air costs did go up, it went up far less than it would have otherwise. But again, companies aren't set up to track even these kinds of basic returns on investment related to sustainability. Okay. Um, 
the business case for the social side seems more complex than for the environment or even the governance. Um, are you making progress in that, in that area? That's an area where I do, I agree, I think it is more complex, and that's an area where we'd like to find partners who would be interested in working with us to better assess this. Um, I think the the work that we did with REI and we are doing with another company uh, on Simile is showing that um, there are real, uh, at the corporate level, real employee benefits that you can monetize as a result of sustainability. But where we need to do a lot more is around um, monetizing the the benefits related to supply chain management and work, you know, so human rights issues, working condition issues, um, living wage benefits, et cetera, you know, and, and um, there'll be avoided risk uh, benefits. There'll be potentially quality improvement benefits. There'll be a variety of different things that we could monetize and we'd be very interested in, in doing that. Okay. Um, do people have financial metrics for return on investment for providing special education at an early age to prevent special and later on also increases in em employment, et cetera? I don't know. I don't think you're capturing that, are you? Yeah, no. I mean, I, that's a public policy question, and there is research around um, really more externalities, which is what you're talking about. So we're focused really on the benefits to the company rather than externalities. Um, but uh, there's a variety of um, researchers, which I'm not, you know, uh, up on that are looking at some of these public policy questions. And I think they're very important set of questions. Okay. Paul wanted to know, do you have examples of how to truly integrate this sustainability mindset into organization? There are so many opportunities day to day having said that it's very hard to implement that in teams. Are there examples of team incentive programs? Yeah. So I, really good question. So how do you execute on this? Um, well, so I think uh, building this into your um, annual work plan and evaluation and your incentives is important. Because if the company is saying one thing with their work plan objectives and incentives that are, don't include sustainability but are saying you have to also do sustainability, then people won't prioritize it. So um, we just saw Apple announce that they're building ESG into um, uh, you know, their C-suites um, requirements. Unilever has been doing this for a long time. Um, we worked with Chiquita when I was running Rainforest Alliance, and they had incentives built in for farm managers to meet um, Rainforest Alliance certification requirements. So I think that that absolutely focuses the mind. <laughs> uh, another area is uh, having a more direct board committee, uh, I, you know, to the extent that boards are involved in this and all, which is very limited. And again, I just had some research come out in HBR on this. Um, uh, there's... The, the, they're discussing these issues in some other committee. It's not ESG focused. You need that kind of board leadership to ensure that the um, that this is being implemented. Uh, and then I think um, you know structuring it in a way where you do have a core sustainability team, but then in addition to that, sort of oversee and work on things. You have uh, um, duties across the key players, whether it's uh, supply chain or procurement or HR, finance, where um, they are. Um, uh, uh, partners in delivering on sustainability. Uh, Yang Bu had a question. It was reported in a session with SASB and AICPA last summer that only 10% of companies report consistently on risk in both their sustainability and financial reports. What might be the most 
pressing barriers to amending that and how might we go about it? Well, I think, you know, in, in our conversations with companies, I think that there's um, just the beginnings of the understanding about what risks they're facing. I think the boards generally don't understand these risks. I think the C-suite is increasingly beginning to, uh, but there's been, um, when you look at sort of the traditional risk um, analysis that these companies do, oftentimes sustainability risks are not included in any kind of meaningful way. So I do think that this is an area where we need more education and engagement around what those risks are. And then finally, um, monetizing risks, understanding the you know, you, you might know that there's a risk, but that risk is vague and in the future sometime. And so how do you assign probability? How do you assign what the costs might be if something does happen is a challenging issue. So um, uh, w- uh, in some of our work with ALO partners, I remember an example that ALO was working on um, around a serial company and sort of looking at the um, uh, stranded asset oppor- uh, challenge. Um, related to drought and water, and they were operating in water risk areas. They wanted to invest in new technology, but it didn't meet their internal hurdle rates, but they weren't including a whole variety of things, including the avoided risk of a stranded asset of a factory being shut down because of lack of water, which had happened to them in Sao Paulo when, if you remember, we had a drought some years ago, and there were a number of factories shut down. So we actually knew the costs over those couple of days of, of what that would of what that entail. So, I mean, I, I do think that this is a new new area. And um, from our perspective, in terms of monetizing risk, we're also looking for partners to help us figure out how to, um, you know, look at market, regulatory, reputational, operational risk associated with sustainability and build um, in good probabilities and assumptions uh, to help companies. What getting going back to what you said about looking for partners? There's a lot of people looking at the live event and the tape what specifically could the audience listening to this do to help you as well as help themselves well um as i mentioned we are looking for partners in new sectors or on new topics uh we operate in a consulting capacity so um this these are paid engagements but the uh work that we develop not the proprietary financial information um, without permission, but the um, work that we develop remains open source and available to everybody. But what we're finding, and companies are finding this extremely useful to bring in Stern and help them really figure out how to do this uh, internally. Um, so we're, we're very open to companies reaching out to us. We also have uh, lots of opportunities for students. Um, so we're we um, can bring students in to do consulting projects for companies for academic credit, or we also have a summer fellowship where um, students could come in and work with companies around their sustainability programs. And it could be around Rosie or it could be around other sustainability priorities of the company. So helping us get our students experience and jobs is also a big part of what we, um, we, we have both. We have undergrads, MBAs, and executive MBAs. Um, I, I also offer executive courses in these topics. So also always open to bespoke courses by companies as well or with companies. Martin wanted to know, have you approached IFC, the International Finance Corporation, about this approach? And if so, so, what was their response? Um, We've worked, so they have taken some of our students and we've worked with them in in, um, sort of a broader way, but have not really talked to them about incorporating Rosie into what they're doing. So that's a good suggestion. It's something that I could think more about. 
Uh, okay, uh, let's see, which was this one? Oh, yeah, Paolo. I uh, wanted to know many thanks for the great presentation. I'm interested in your views on applying the ROSI methodology to the businesses of financial institutions. That is, how to monetize a business case for sustainability in financial institutions. How do these agents apply ESG elements in their modus operandi? Many thanks. Yeah. So for financial institutions, um, you know, if you look at what or what would be a financial institution sustainability strategy, set of sustainability strategies. So one would be related to operations, right? Um, reduction of um, energy, you know, greenhouse gas emissions associated with their buildings or their travel, um, uh, reduction of, um, you know, paper, a variety of other things that, you know, you could look at and uh, energy used in their buildings. I mean, you can look at a variety of different things that are their own footprint, relatively small, right? Um, but still, um, uh, relevant. Um, you can look at um, their offerings. So um, on the innovation, so that's sort of the first was really on the operational efficiency front. The second is on innovation and growth. What new products and services are they developing and designing for um, uh, investors uh, who are, whether they're institutional level or um, retail, who are very interested in ESG um, and, uh, and, and you could then evaluate what kind of um, return on those new products and services you could, you could get through that. And also, does it help um, increase loyalty to you? Do you retain your clients because you're bringing this other element to them? One of the things that we're seeing, which is super interesting, this isn't in the financial services, but was in talking with um, a public paper company, is that they found that their sustainability programs allowed their salespeople to have a very different type of relationship, a stickier relationship with the buyer in the um, hospitals while they were selling their, their paper products. Um, and that resulted in better financial performance for them over time. So I think that kind of engagement around these more meaningful topics um, beyond the, which obviously remains incredibly important, the return on the portfolio um, can also build a customer engagement and recruit new customers to you that you might not have already. And then another area would be employees, right? Um, employee recruitment and retention uh, for a financial services company that is really innovating in the space. You'll probably get the best and the brightest and you'll get people staying around longer of those best and the brightest. So those are just a few ideas. And there's also avoid risk of um, uh, regulatory risk or risk associated with making bad picks uh, due to not understanding material ESG issues. Um, Priscilla wanted to know how does Rosie integrate current thinking around double materiality. Not sure what that is. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> um, a question about Kenya Link references and folks. Listen, everyone who registers, you can either use your phone app or the desktop app. Everyone is then in your database. You can reach out to them. You can follow them. If you both follow each other, you can call or text each other completely. So just use the phone app or the desktop app and play around with networking among yourselves. It's quite cool. Uh, speaking to companies, does this focus on sustainability from Renee and financial performance make it easier for companies to rethink or redefine their broader corporate purpose and operational processes in connection to their ESG practices? Uh, the short answer is yes. Right. Because, you know, um, bottom line, a company is responsible 
to its owners, to its shareholders, to, um, to a society to deliver good returns. The challenge that we've seen is that those returns have been the sort of short term nature of returns has been prioritized over other benefits, which actually ultimately, even in the short term, but definitely in the medium and long term can have a negative impact on financial returns for the company. So I think really understanding and um, embedding these processes will, will help the companies perform better financially and also um, in, enable them to justify to um, more, there's still plenty of, there's ESG investors, but there's still plenty of, lots of investors are saying, just deliver short-term results, just cut costs as much as possible. Um, don't talk to me about this ESG stuff, right? So you need to have the arguments back about why, for example, a Unilever and a PepsiCo are outperforming a craft, a craft who has refused to sort of pivot on their um, uh, lack of sustainability program in terms of their products. They're not nutritious. They're not sustainable. Um, and they haven't recognized kind of what's happening in the space, whereas Unilever and PepsiCo are shifting their portfolios, acquiring new innovative products, et cetera, right? Um, so you, you really, I think, um, you know, shifting this mindset of both investors and corporates. Unfortunately, to go to Robert's question at the very beginning of the session, unfortunately, we still have to do that. There's still plenty of people to think that this is all ridiculous and does not accrue to the bottom line. Unfortunately, Elsie had a question. Rosie seems to address two issues, motivating execs to improve financials with sustainable practices and making it easier to operationalize that with tools, Brava. That addresses their own sustainability. What is their incentive to measure meta impact on sustainability of the web of life? Oh, wow. So I think there you're talking about externalities, right? Um, how, how to measure um, impacts on air quality and health, for example, or um, water quality and, um, you know, sort of just just the sort of social cost of, of um, either bad behavior or the social benefit of good behavior. And I think there are, um, again, a number of uh, organizations that are beginning to look at that. Um, there's uh, uh, George Serafman at Harvard is doing what he called impact, um, impact value account uh, weighting. Uh, that's not quite exactly right, um, but they're looking at some of these externalities. So, um, I think, you know, this is an area where we need to have more um, uh, data and uh, also begin to hold companies accountable. But um, my feeling is they first need to sort of get their own shop in shape and uh, and then, you know, begin to really understand their impacts on the broader societal bottom line. Um, and uh, uh, I have I have a hard stop it at, uh, in, in a minute. So just to flag that. Okay, um, so we're never going to be able to do all the questions because there are about 100 questions going oh on. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll send you the, um, the chat and, with, and you can connect with those people uh, later. So um, we're going to have to end this, you said, in one minute. So I just want to thank you very, very much. Uh, before you go, I'd like to take a group selfie with everyone who is here. So all you need to do is just look in the camera and say hello, and that's it. And after a time, I will just shut this down. I want to thank uh, Tenzi very, very much for doing this. Um, and thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to our guest. 
and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.